Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of Joshua once again. And this morning we are in chapter 22. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read all of it, but we will start in a moment in verse 1, Joshua 22, starting in that first verse. In the year 1850, Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to his brother John. The purpose of this letter was to confront him about a problem in his life. What was his problem? Simply put, his brother was lazy. And 10 years before the start of the Civil War, 10 years before he was elected president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln wrote a rather confrontational letter to his brother. And this is some of what he said, quote, you are an idler. I doubt whether since I saw you, you have done a good whole day's work in any one day. This habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. It is vastly important to you and still more so to your children that you should break the habit. Now that sounds kind of like a letter that we could write to a lot of people these days, right? I'm sure that it was very difficult for Abraham Lincoln to write that letter, especially to his brother, because there are very few people who enjoy confrontation. We don't like confrontation, but sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes we have a problem and we need to be confronted about it. Sometimes it's someone close to us. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is go to that friend or that loved one and gently speak the truth in love to them, warning them about some sin, some problem, some danger in their life that they need to know about and address. And maybe some of you are right there this morning. Well, in the passage that we're going to study, Joshua chapter 22, we read this very interesting story about a great big misunderstanding that happened in the nation of Israel. It turns out that those Israelites who lived on the west side of the Jordan, they erroneously believed that their brethren on the east side of the Jordan had turned away from the Lord and they were worshiping another God. Now, that was not true, but they believed that that was true. And believing that, they decided they were not going to ignore it. They were going to confront their brethren about it. Now, this is one of those stories that you hardly ever hear preached. I'll be honest, I've been a pastor 25 years. I have never preached from this particular text. Ultimately, Joshua 22 is about how we, as the people of God, should hold one another accountable 
This is a reminder to us how we are to help one another to remain faithful to God, even if we have to confront one another sometimes in the process. And there are three lessons in particular we're going to see in this story, each of them something that we should hope for and pray for and pursue in our church. Would to God that all of these things would be present. The first thing we're going to see is the practice of commending one another. The practice of commending one another. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, let me pause here. These were the tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan, the Jordan River, in an area called Gilead. Back in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, before Israel entered the promised land, there were two and a half tribes out of the 12 tribes who came to Moses with a request. They were ranchers. They had lots of flocks. The Bible says that this land was good for grazing. So they went to Moses and said, Moses, we know that we're all going into the promised land, but we would like to settle here over here on the east side. And Moses said, all right, I'll let you do that, but on only one condition. When we cross the Jordan River, when we go to take the promised land, you have to go with us because we are all in this together and we fight together. And you're going to go with us and we're going to fight those battles. And only when the war is over, only when the last battle has been won, then and only then you can go back home on the east side of the Jordan. Well, the Bible says they agreed to that condition. Israel crossed over the Jordan River. Seven years later, here we are in chapter 22. That's how long it took. And notice in verse 2. And said to them, and Joshua said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Now, what command did they obey? Notice verse 3. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. I read that and I think, what a great testimony. This is what I want eventually someone to say about me. I hope this is what you would have somebody say about you, that someone would say, you kept God's commands. You obeyed the Lord, and you were faithful. You were a faithful part of the body. You were faithful to your brethren, and you were there for them in every battle. Now, we are not called to fight physical battles. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are, however, called to fight together spiritually. And just like Moses told these two and a half tribes, you don't get to just sit back and watch while your brethren fight alone. Likewise, 
you don't sit back and watch while your brother or sister in Christ fights that spiritual battle alone. You see that loved one, that brother or sister, and they're struggling. Maybe they've got an addiction. Maybe there's a marriage that's fallen apart. Maybe there's some besetting sin. Maybe they're getting ready to make a terrible, unbiblical decision that will bring terrible damage to their life or to their testimony. Understand, that's not just their battle. That is your battle. That's your battle. You fight that battle along with them. You fight on your knees in prayer. Remember what Paul told the Colossians? He said, I am wrestling in prayer for you, not just I'm praying for you. That's good, but that's different. Paul said, no, I'm wrestling in prayer. I'm fighting for you. You fight with the Word of God, reminding them of God's Word, God's statutes, reminding them of God's promises. You fight by coming alongside of them to encourage them to stay faithful to the Lord. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, those who were living on the east side of the Jordan, they made a promise before God, and they said, we will fight with our brethren and praise the Lord. They kept their promise. And so now Joshua calls them together, and he commends them, and he does it publicly. He says, you are faithful. You obeyed God. You did it. Thank you. Now. The battle's over, and you get to go home and rest. Now, what Joshua did for them, we need to do for one another in the body of Christ. We must be exhorting and commending one another regularly. So many of us are quick. We are so quick to point out every little thing that is wrong in each other's lives. But sometimes we're so slow to commend one another. We're so slow to commend what is good and just. We must adopt this practice, the practice of commending one another. Now, there's something else that they do here that we can emulate. We see not only the practice of commending one another, but we see the habit of exhorting one another. The habit of exhorting one another. Joshua knows that soon, these two and a half tribes, they're going to be a little bit farther away than they were before. And now there's going to be a great big river in between them. And he's not going to see them as often as he used to. So he's concerned, kind of like a parent whose kids grow up. Will they remember everything I taught them? Will they continue serving the Lord? Well, he's a little bit concerned. And so he's going to exhort them to keep on being faithful to the Lord. Look at verse 5. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. For seven long years, these men have been away from their families. Think about that. Seven years. And now, finally, they get to go home 
They get to see how much their kids have grown since they've been gone. They get to embrace their wives once again. Can you imagine how excited they must have been? They're entering a new season of life. They're going from a time of war to a time of peace. But before they go home, there is something they need to remember. They need to remember that the same thing that led to victory on the battlefield, which was faithful obedience to God, that is the very thing that is going to lead to victory and prosperity when they get home. Faithful obedience to God. Their military obligations are ending, but their spiritual obligations are just getting started. And so Joshua, oh, he just begins to exhort them to do certain things. Now, what things is he exhorting them to do? Simple things. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what Joshua was telling them. Keep the commandments. Love God. Walk in his ways. Hold fast to him. Cling to him. Serve him. How? With all of your heart. With all of your soul. In other words, what Joshua is exhorting them to do here, this is more than dry, dead religion. This is more than going through the motions or checking off some boxes, some obligations. This is joyful obedience, and this is willing obedience. By the way, you do understand there's a difference between obedience and compliance. A person can comply to an order, but not from the heart. Maybe they're doing it because they fear the consequences if they don't. It's kind of like that father who took his family to a restaurant, had a little boy who was so full of energy, he just would not sit down. The father said, son, sit down. That little boy started arguing with his dad, and he told him again, sit down. But he didn't want to, so this time he stood up even taller, got on his tippy toes. Finally, the father said, son, if you don't sit down right now, you're going to regret it when we get home. He knew what that meant. So begrudgingly, he slouched down, but then he leaned in and he said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. That is compliance. Joshua is exhorting them to go beyond mere compliance. And he's exhorting them to pursue this joyful and willing obedience to be passionate about serving God. There's something else that he exhorts them to do in this passage. The Bible says in the following verses, he gives them their share of the spoils of war. He gives them the silver, the gold, the bronze, the iron, a lot of clothing. And then at the very end of verse 8, Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. Now think about this. They were to share these blessings with others. Now, why is that? Because it's not just the soldiers who sacrificed. The kids who had to grow up for seven years without a dad in the home, they sacrificed. The wives who had to lead the homes without the help of husband, they sacrificed, including the older men, the disabled men. They were not men of war. They couldn't go fight. But those men could still hold the fort and watch the flocks in their absence. They sacrificed as well. 
And since they all sacrificed, they were all to receive a part of the spoils of war. Everyone played a part, therefore everyone was to receive a part of the blessing. Now there's a principle here that applies to the church as well in the body of Christ. We're all different. We have different gifts. We are called to do different things and serve God in different ways. And yet, every gift is vitally important, and every member matters. That same principle is true for us today. So, we see Joshua exhorting them and blessing them, and then he's exhorting them to bless others. And we've got to do the same. Part of being together in the body of Christ, part of being the church, is that we exhort one another to go beyond a lukewarm life. We push each other to go beyond a half-hearted commitment or lifeless worship. We are to exhort one another to go all out for God and to love Him with all of our hearts. So we see in all of this the practice of commending one another the habit of exhorting one another. But here's where we're going to spend a bit more time this morning. We also see a willingness to correct one another. A willingness to correct one another. This is where we get to the heart of the story in Joshua chapter 22. Look at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad... And half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Notice they come to the Jordan River. You know what that means? That means they're almost home. But before they go home, they do something interesting. The Bible says even before they cross that river, on the west side of the Jordan, they built an altar and apparently... It was a very large altar. Uh, the Bible refers to it as a great, impressive altar in verse 10. And I'm sure that they meant well. I'm sure that they were sincere, they had good intentions. But building this altar was actually a foolish thing to do. Now, what would be foolish about building an altar to the Lord? Well, look at verse 11. We're about to find out. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh, to go to war against them. I want you to notice in verse 11, they heard someone say, this is how conflicts get started, right? They heard someone say, we don't know who it was, the Bible doesn't give us the name of this person, but there was somebody who opened their mouth and started a rumor. Somebody talking without knowing what they're talking about. That's always a recipe for trouble. Somebody saw that altar, and they assumed, if 
those guys on the east side of the Jordan have built their own altar, it must be because they've decided they're going to worship a different God. They started to do this right here. And that rumor spread. That rumor went throughout the entire nation, and everybody heard it. And the Bible says that those nine and a half tribes over here on the west side of the Jordan, they heard about it. They got so angry, they went to Shiloh and gathered. They're getting ready for war. They just now have peace, and already they're on the brink of a civil war. Now, you might be hearing this and wondering, come on, what's so bad about Building an altar. I mean, sounds good, right? Build an altar, a place where you can go and, and worship God and, and sacrifice to the Lord and, and praise Him. I mean, that sounds like a, a good idea. That sounds like a good thing to do, right? Why are these Western tribes so angry about that altar? They're angry because when Moses gave the people the law, back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to make a note, to read it later, you can do so. But in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses, in giving them the law, said, When you enter the promised land, there shall be only one altar. One central place where the people will come and where sacrifices will be made unto the Lord. Moses did not tell them where that one place should be. At first, it was Gilgal. Later on, it was Shiloh. In Joshua chapter 2, it was at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Later on, it became Jerusalem. That's where the temple was built. The place, the location could change, but the point was, the law was, there could only be one place, one location at a time. And so, because the law said that, these nine and a half tribes to the west saw that altar and they believed the rumor. They assumed that it must be true that they built that altar because they must be worshiping another God. And they did something that we do all too often. You know what they did? They assumed the worst about their brethren. And they did not give them the benefit of the doubt. They assumed the worst and didn't give them the benefit of the doubt. Adrian Rogers, that late great preacher from Memphis, Tennessee, once said, it's a mighty thin pancake that only has one side. Pancakes have two sides. You know, just about every story you hear, there are two sides to the story. And you need to hear them both. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 13, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. It's a shameful thing, the Bible says, when we as Christians assume things that are not actually true. It is a shameful thing when we just assume the worst about one another. We just assume somebody is guilty just because we heard somebody say it. It's a shameful thing when we do not give one another the benefit of doubt. Well, in the following verses, these nine and a half tribes, they sent uh, 
uh, Phinehas, the son of the high priest, they sent ten rulers representing those nine and a half tribes. They sent a delegate, delegation over here to the east in order to confront them about this. And they didn't mince any words. Three times uh, in chapter 22, they said, what you have done is treachery. Four times in this chapter, they said to them, you have turned away from the Lord. Five times in this chapter, they used the word rebel. You are rebelling against the Lord. Don't rebel against the Lord. They didn't water it down. And meanwhile, these folks over here on the east, they're just standing there and they're listening to these false accusations that are being made about them. And they waited until the delegation finished, and then they responded. Now, we're going to read part of their response. Notice what they said in verse 23. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we have done it fear for a reason saying in time to come your descendants may speak to our descendants saying what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel for the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us you children of Reuben and children of Gad you have no part in the Lord so your descendants would make our descendants cease from fearing the Lord therefore we said let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, now listen to this, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, now here's the key word. Are you listening? Here is the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Now, how did the two and a half tribes explain the altar that they had built. They said, well, it's not a real altar. It's just a replica. Why in the world would you build a replica of another altar that you're not even going to use as an altar? It's just going to be seen. Why would you do that? Well, they said, we built it because... One day, your kids might say to our kids, you guys aren't part of Israel. I bet that was already starting to happen. There's, pro there's probably some more to the story here that the Bible doesn't tell us. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But that was probably already happening. They said, your kids are going to say to our kids, you guys are on the other side of the Jordan. You're not Israel. You don't worship our God. Maybe our kids will listen and start to believe them and think, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe we're not part of their club go off and serve some other God. So they said, we built this altar to remind everybody that we're just as much Jewish as you are. 
that we worship the Lord and we love the Lord and we serve the Lord just as much as you do. Again, their intentions were good, but it was a bad idea. You know why it was a bad idea for them to build that altar? Number one, God did not tell them to do it. Number two, it created a lot of confusion, a lot of conflict. It almost brought them to war. But number three, if they wanted to remind their children that they were Israelites and that they served Yahweh, they did not have to build a fake altar to do it. All they had to do was love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I guarantee you, their kids would have noticed. Just like your kids will notice as well. And so this altar, it was a bad idea, but it was not the great and terrible sin that these guys on the West thought that it was. The Bible says in verse 31, Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. Now, one moment they're on the brink of war. The next moment it's like, ah, breathing one big sigh of relief. Well, even though these Western tribes were wrong about what they believed, these Western tribes, they were wrong in their evaluation of their brethren. They were wrong in believing these assumptions. Even though they were wrong, can we just give them credit for one thing? When these Western tribes believed that the Eastern tribes had turned away from the Lord and were worshiping another god, they said, we will do something about it. Hear me very carefully. They were willing to confront them. They were willing to call it sin. They urged them to repent. They warned them against the judgment of God. They even offered to be part of the solution. And they said, if you feel like you live too far from the promised land, come back over here and we'll make room for you and you can live with us. But at the end of the day, better to confront someone poorly than to ignore them well. Better to confront someone poorly than to ignore them well. I would much rather somebody come to me and confront me and do it in all of the wrong ways and say all of the wrong things. I would rather somebody do that than just sit back and watch and eat popcorn while I'm getting ready to step on some spiritual landmine and make a wreck of my life. I would prefer that person who's willing to confront me, who's willing to correct me because they actually care about me. I wonder if there's some people in your life who are getting ready, spiritually speaking, they are getting ready to drive off a cliff 
And you're that person God has put in their life. You're that person they look to and they will listen to and respect. You're that person who can speak the truth in love to them. And they will avoid great damage and great suffering. But there must be that willingness in our lives. There must be that willingness to correct one another. And part of that also means there must be a willingness in us to receive correction. I think one of the greatest examples of this in all of the Bible is found in Galatians chapter 2. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he told them a story about something that had happened at the church at Antioch. I don't know if you remember this story, but back then, in the first century, the Bible tells us that there were these false teachers that were going around. They were called Judaizers. But these false teachers were going around from town to town, church to church, and preaching bad doctrine. They were preaching a message to the Gentile Christians, and they were preaching a message to the Jewish Christians, because in the church you had both. To the Gentile Christians, they were saying, oh, don't you guys know? You can't become Christians. First, you've got to become Jewish, and you've got to keep the law, and then you can be saved. And then they started preaching to the Jewish Christians and said, you guys shouldn't even have anything to do with those guys until they do that. In fact, you shouldn't even have dinner with them. Shouldn't even sit down at the table to share a meal with them. And they began to have some influence. And one of the men who was influenced by them, do you remember who it was? It was Peter. Peter, how in the world did he fall for this? God bless him. He was the guy God used in Acts chapter 10. He preached in the home of Cornelius. And for the very first time, the gospel went to the Gentiles. Of all people, he should have known better. But the Bible tells us he began to listen to this false teaching. He began to believe it. And he previously would dine with his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, but he stopped doing that. He said, you know what? I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to eat with you anymore. And when the apostle Paul heard about this in, in Galatians chapter 2, it says that Paul confronted him, listen, face to face before all. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that business meeting? <laughs> but this was Peter we're talking about. Peter was an apostle. Peter walked and talked with Jesus. He walked on the water for a moment. He was up with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's the man God used at Pentecost. He preached, and 3,000 people were saved. And yet, when Paul saw that Peter was starting to believe a false doctrine, he called him out. And not just Peter he said, and also Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was Paul's mentor when Paul was a baby in the faith. And yet Paul confronted Barnabas and corrected Barnabas as well. And praise the Lord that he did. Because it turns out the best friend you have in your life is that person who's, who loves you enough, who cares about you enough 
They're not going to sit back and just watch you crash and burn. No, they love you enough that they're going to go to you and speak the truth in love. In fact, the only friends you have in your life are those who are willing to speak the truth in love. Let me close with this question. We can't help but read this story and wonder why it's such a large story in the book of Joshua. We can't help but wonder why is so much attention given to this story, this story about a fake altar and a big misunderstanding and an almost war? Why is there so much attention here? Why is this story so important? Well, it's important because, again, it's all based upon the premise that there was to be only one altar. One altar, one place of sacrifice, one place for the shedding of blood, one place for the people to gather and ask forgiveness, one place where sinners could encounter a holy God. Now, that was true in the Old Testament because it was pointing us to the New Testament. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God's only begotten Son, He came from heaven to earth, And he lived a perfect, a sinless life. Therefore, Jesus was completely innocent. He had what we need, innocence. And then he went to the cross and he exchanged his innocence for our guilt. He took what we deserve so that we might receive what he deserves. And the Bible says in Hebrews 7 that Jesus died once and for all. So once again, we see one altar, one cross, one sacrifice, one shedding of blood, one atonement, one substitute. One door, one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. That's why the story matters, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we must have the courage to confront others not only confronting one another in the body of Christ doing these things that we've talked about today, but this is why we must have the courage to confront a lost world about their sin. We must confront a lost world about their sinful condition that without Christ we're dead spiritually. We have no hope, and all we could look forward to is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's why this matters. But not only that, we confront them with the good news as well. That in spite of our sin and our rebellion against God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how relevant it is 3,400 some years later. How this still applies to our lives, how there are lessons that we can learn and heed. God, thank you for this. And thank you for not only being willing to save us, but for putting us into a, a family, a body of believers, for giving us the opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ where we are called at times to confront one another, where we are to be continually commending one another and those things that we see in each other that are good and wholesome and holy and just and exhorting one another and encouraging one another to go deeper in our walk with you. But then sometimes, God, we have to correct one another when we're going astray. That's why we need each other in the body of Christ. That's why the church exists. It was your idea. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to take these things and apply them to our lives today. But, Father, also that you'd give us a holy boldness that we would be willing to confront a lost world with their evil, with their rebellion against God, with their sin. And we know, Lord, that we are just sinners saved by grace. Were it not for grace, we could look at any person, no matter how far from you they are, and say, were it not for grace, that would be us. And so, Father, give us the courage to be willing to confront this world, not only with the bad news about our sin and separation from you, but also with the good news that there is hope and there's life and there's salvation through Jesus Christ. That your word says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, Father, I, I pray for any here today who need to take that step for the very first time, who need to call upon Jesus as Lord and accept him and decide today they're going to follow him. Lord, I pray that this would be for them their day of salvation. And we thank you for those in the earlier services who've already taken that step, who've already done that. But maybe there's somebody here at 11 o'clock who needs right now to make the most important decision of their life, the decision to follow Christ as Lord of their life today. Father, Knock on the door of their heart. Don't let them have peace or comfort. Don't let them be at ease until that moment when they know that they know that they are a follower of Christ, that they have been born again, that they belong to you. Have your way. Help us all to apply what we've read and learned in your word this morning. We'll give you all the thanks and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.